Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I am your hot Torontonian, Dean Deloff. And I'm coming down from the bottom of the Midwest, from St. Louis, where it is also extremely hot, Matt Bernico. Hi. <laughs> Uh, well, it happened, Matt. We said it would never happen, but it did happen. We finally missed one week of an episode after doing this podcast for six years. It did happen. And, you know, I mean, at most jobs, you start working and you kind of accrue sick days or vacation days. And I feel like we've earned it, you know? Uh, we don't have a boss, except for God. And I think that, that uh, doing the podcast for so long, I think we have earned at least one sick or vacation day. And I think we've taken it. And that's fine. I'm going to take that. That sounds good to me. Although there is like a completist part of me that feels uh, like there's a bit of a hollow side. But I'm going to just chalk that up to neoliberal disease. And I'm going to say sometimes you just got to take a day off. That's right. You do. Um, and if you think about it, this podcast is going to be a little bit light on maybe some of the meteor content. <laughs> so this is also could be a day off if you think about it. But I'm not thinking about it, so don't worry. It's it's fine. Um, folks. I'm working hard over here. I don't know about you. <laughs> okay. I'll work harder. I'll put a little more sweat into this one. Um, folks, I just got back from vacation. Uh, my I've still got vacation brain. Um, I was spending some time in the UK. I was traveling all around that big, great country that they call the United Kingdom. And some people begrudgingly call Wales, Scotland, and England. <laughs> um, <laughs> some people not thrilled about the, the united part, you know? They don't like it. They're not uh, crazy about mm-hmm. being united. And uh, I don't blame them. But uh, anyways, I'm back. Um, I had a great time. You know, uh, if there's one takeaway I have from this entire trip, it is that people in the UK have sandwiches figured out in a way that people in the United mm-hmm. States and in Canada couldn't even begin to fathom. Um, That's true. Yeah, I mean, it's nuts. What, what was your top sandwich? Okay, uh, I have, I mean, so I love a, I love just a cheese sandwich with cheese and, like, cheese and butter on bread. I think that rules. It's, like, sort of a, like, a raw grilled cheese. <laughs> um, but I'm really crazy about uh, the onion and cheese sandwich, which is, like, chopped up cheese with mayonnaise and onion. And it's, like, the best sandwich I've ever had in my entire life. And you can buy it from a gas station. I think that rules. Uh, it's great. I think um, people that, in the United States really need to get on this whole this whole trend. Yeah, I think that is why the sun never set on the British Empire, right? They they uh, succeeded in sandwich supremacy. They lorded that over the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, a lot of bad, bad effects of that. But you can understand um, how they made it so far. Yeah. Well, speaking of British colonialism, let me tell you about this, too, really quick. This is a great report back. <laughs> like, I, I feel like um, I just got back to school and I do have to tell everybody about what I did to kind of justify not doing homework yeah. for several weeks. Um, That's right. So while we were there, uh, we ended up going to a lot of museums, and um, we were in Edinburgh, and it was great. Scotland, 10 out of 10, great area, great country. Um, <laughs> I guess. I don't really care that much about it. It's fine. It was fun. I had a great time there. But we went to, like, all of these, like, military museums at this castle, and um, it is so funny how completely, like, the, the, the UK propaganda machine, like, just does not spin as hard as the United States. There's like sort of no justification when it came to like all these wars. They're just sort of like, yeah, we were there. <laughs> and isn't that cool? <laughs> Look at these guys in uniforms. It's like, you know, there'd be a plaque that was like when when the 12th Regiment of the Scottish Dragoons were in South Africa fighting. And it's like, wait a minute, why were they in South Africa? <laughs> Don't ask that question. Don't ask that question. No, that's not important. Don't worry about that part. <laughs> but we- uh, I believe we were talking about bravery. I don't, <laughs> I don't understand why you're bringing that in. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, the UK, it's great. You should go check it out if you have the opportunity. 
Um, it was great. Uh, have a big sandwich over there. Tell them that that Matt from a podcast sent you and that you need to consume <laughs> the sandwich from the gas station. Now, tell me, though, what happened being a good Anglican from the United States or an Episcopal, I guess, going back to what is, I guess, the Rome of your uh, particular adopted faith tradition? <laughs> yeah, I ignored it completely. I didn't go to church. I didn't even <laughs> I barely looked at a church. I walked past um, I walked past a few and I thought they were great. Um, I spent a lot of time in Scotland where um, the the Church of Scotland is actually reformed and not uh, not Anglican at all. So uh, I just didn't think about it <laughs> at all. <laughs> you know, I was out amongst the uh, the rivers and the glens and uh, these great Highland cows. And I thought that's where God is probably not in these great churches, mm-hmm. you know. Right, right. And Justin Welby, you didn't see him kind of just, you know, wandering around the streets of London, hoping that everybody's going to come back to the big the big giant church by the big giant clock. Well, when I was in London, it was um, it was right before the uh, the big platinum jubilee for the queen. And I where she forgives everybody's debts. Right. (laughs) That's exactly right. And I believe that Justin was probably very busy kind of helping with that. You know, he's he's not he doesn't have a lot to do. So they drafted him to set up chairs or something. So he was probably out in the field. And I just missed him. Right. Right. Changing out her steady supply of unicorn blood or whatever keeps her alive. Yeah. You know, I'm uh, this is a hot a hot take. I'm pretty sure I'm like 98 percent sure the queen's actually dead and no one knows. (laughs) <laughs> yeah well you had insider knowledge but uh okay did you go though to the shrine of washingham and, and if so which one <laughs> uh it's so sad because i didn't think about it until i was already on the way back but i was within an hour of washingham and i didn't go and mm. i feel like a complete fool <laughs> you'll have to go back i know wouldn't it have been great if i could have had a picture of myself there at washingham after all of the washingham talk we've had in this podcast would have been crazy yeah You'd have to post it directly to the Anglicanism subreddit. <laughs> they would lose their minds. They would not. They would have a hard time believing that I was actually there, taking in all the great energy <laughs> from that place. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, well, here we are. Anyway, I'm glad that Matt's back. It's been a hard two weeks for me, all alone, with nobody to play video games with or complain to at nighttime uh, about extremely niche books <laughs> or whatever else we uh, bullshit about. And so I'm glad that you've returned, Matt, and I'm glad also that we can get back to the basics here in this episode where we are going to bring a bit of a lock-in flair because neither of us have any brain power left to do a proper episode. So strap in, buckle up. It's going to be some Reddit goofs and some current events, but I think it's worthwhile uh, because Matt was gone so long we kind of allowed the the subreddits to turn over, you know, some fresh soil. And I think we've got some good things germinating here. So, Matt, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? No, I'm going first. I've got some questions for you, Dean, that you need to answer specifically. All right. This is from the Catholicism subreddit. And here it goes. What is the Catholic Church belief on fairies? I've been looking all over the internet for the answer to this question, says this, says this user, but I haven't found much. I have a very strong <laughs> belief in fairies, and I always sort of have. Great. I do believe that they are real, but I do not think that they are necessarily beings to interact with, similarly to demons. So I don't think fairies are inherently Wait. evil. Yep. Okay. <laughs> you can't interact with fairies. They aren't necessarily evil, but they are like demons in the sense that you can't interact with them. I don't know. Regardless, I was wondering what the church believes. Does the church believe that fairies even exist? (laughs) If so, where do they come from? Are they demonic? I have heard theories that the fairies are either fallen children of Eve or something else. What do you all think? 
Do you know of any official viewpoints from the church? So, Dean, as a good Catholic, uh, someone who's been through catechism, I'm sure that this one's an easy one for you. What does the church believe about fairies? That's a great question. Okay, I'm Googling it right now, but I will give you my hot take. So, uh, they fairies come up a lot in Catholic culture, so I have to believe that they are... We must believe in them. Why else would we tell all these great stories about them? <laughs> um, but what the church teaches about it, now that is something I really can't say. Let's see. Um, I'm just doing a quick Google here. As I said, Catholic Insight says it's a big part of our uh, Catholic imagination. Maybe it's a class of angel. Okay. A lot of informal beliefs here. This is from a, a semi-retired English professor named Stephen Roney. <laughs> no, that's not his name. That Stephen seems, Roney? That's my favorite yeah, pizza topping. Pretty reputable. The church, who knows what it thinks about fairies, but me specifically as a Catholic, I don't know. Why not? But you definitely can't interact with them. Okay, so like demons, you can't interact with them. Here's the thing that, that pe people on Reddit said, and they upvoted a 32 points to, that <laughs> Catholic, Catholic cosmology doesn't allow for beings that aren't either angelic or demonic. So that means that fairies are either one or the other. Okay, but that, <laughs> what about humans? Okay, that's the third category. That's in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> um so uh fairies this person um reasons they couldn't be angels because angels wouldn't lie about their nature so they must be demons hmm. see i don't know none of this makes any sense because all right you've got angels demons humans but what if like what if fairies are just kind of another cryptid like bigfoot if we found a bigfoot tomorrow catholics would believe that bigfoot is out there right so if we found some fairies tomorrow you know, We'd have to yeah, conclude they're out there. I think that makes sense. I did I did do a, a word search on the Catholics I've read it for Bigfoot, and no one's been asking that question, and I think that's a bummer because mm -hmm. that's the one I'd be more interested in. So I think that you're right. Um, they might just be kind of in the middle uh, cryptids, ne neither good nor bad, just like, just like humans uh, and Bigfoot uh, fairies might mm -hmm. exist in that space, that liminal space. Yeah. And like Bigfoot, also, they could be interdimensional walkers, and maybe that's why we can't interact with them exactly. That's why they're kind of like demons, but not exactly demons. Man, remember that post uh, a while back that was about Mormonism, and, and um, <laughs> somebody oh, yeah. somebody suggested that, like, uh, Bigfoot was Cain? Oh, I love that. That's my favorite, right. my favorite mythology. It's pretty good. Uh, okay, let's move on to an Anglican question. I was telling Matt as we were searching for these questions. Um, by the way, I guess if you're <laughs> if you're joining this podcast for the first time, oh. whoopsie, you shouldn't this you shouldn't listen to this one. Uh, we do we do these goose. We're looking at these reddits, uh, and this is the big Magnificat youth group. So as we were having our kind of typical youth pastor, you know, planning session, thinking through what we're going to do. Uh, I was saying to Matt that the uh, questions on our Anglicanism are so hard to find funny ones because they're all like way too sincere and mostly too normal. Uh, but I did find a few and I think it's been good that we kind of waited for a while. So this one, it is a, a bit on the normal side, but I do think uh, I want your kind of edgy take on this one, Matt. Uh, the theme here is cathedral etiquette. Okay. And the question says, I'm going to be volunteering at an event at a cathedral soon. And as I'm not religious myself, I haven't spent very much time in churches before. I want to be as respectful as possible. So I was wondering if there's any specific etiquette I should be aware of. So Matt, this person has absolutely zero context 
And this is a great opportunity for you either to give them a hand or play a great prank. And I'm going to leave that to you. But uh, what are some what's some great cathedral etiquette that they might have? So uh, I'm uh, we're on luck here because in St. Louis, uh, where I live, there's a great basilica. And now that's not a cathedral. I think that there's a difference. I don't know if I could tell you what the difference is, but I know there is one. But there is a basilica. And I did go once with a school trip and I got some insight on what you're supposed to do there and not do there. And the one thing I do remember is don't wear shorts. Wear pants. Because mm. mm-hmm. it's because now why is that? Well, because shorts are inherently disrespectful. <laughs> to sh- right, because God hates the knees. Right, right, right. Some some religions are like, well, you have to cover your head. You have to wear a certain hat. Uh, you have to wear a veil, whatever. But uh, Christianity is the only religion that's uh, kind of got ahead of it all and said, you got to wear pants. Don't show God your legs. He'll be mad. <laughs> Yeah, those sick legs that he hates to see. This person does say, uh, wear black shoes when robed. Um, I'm sorry, and what about robes? You can, you should wear a robe? When, if you're robed, I, I, they don't really say uh, <laughs> in, in what context or why, but if you have a robe, apparently you should be wearing black shoes. All right, yeah, I mean, show up, uh, you, get your bath, you get your bathrobe, and you wear some nice black shoes, and I think you'll be set. I mean, God won't see your legs, and that's really what's at the crux of this whole thing. You know, I've never really paid attention, I guess, to what shoes people are wearing, but you have to imagine there's like, where's the priest out there who's just wearing like some big pink Napoleon Dynamite moon boots? You know that there's got to be like a sneakerhead priest out there that like loves his Jordans <laughs> or something that he's wearing them with his, uh, I don't know, <laughs> his his collar. Yeah, or in the opposite direction. I mean, I guarantee there's an Episcopal priest out there who's still wearing some Toms. Yeah, there's definitely the Chuck's priest, right? Yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah, he's got game. <laughs> okay, well, there we go. So if you go to a, if you go to a cathedral, don't wear shorts. Don't wear shorts and do wear black shoes. I think that's it. I think that's really the only thing. Maybe uh, I feel like people are always whispering. I don't know if that's uh, if that's out of like sort of decorum or people just don't like the big echoey noise that their voice makes. But I feel like pe- people are always whispering in cathedrals and, and stuff. So maybe just whisper. Right. Whisper and don't wear shorts, I think, are my two big, or, my big sticking points. Yeah. Maybe break the mold, though, because it's kind of like maybe it's sort of like slumber party rules. Like the first time someone starts whispering, everyone starts whispering because it's like, oh, what if we're not supposed to wake up our parents? But then if like the friend who's hosting the sleepover comes in talking in a normal voice, everyone's like, oh, OK, great. It's OK. We can breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah, right. Yeah. So maybe you just have to be the one person to talk at a normal or even louder volume and just kind of see what happens. Yeah. I mean, I'm for that. I'm for trying it, at least. I mean, will you make God mad? I don't know. As long as you're wearing pants, it's fine. But um, it's something to try. Maybe you could be the loud talker and break the break the silence. Right. There is one more in here that says, uh, "Don't sit in the cathedral or bishop's chair." Oh, of and course, no. Don't sit. In, I... Don't sit in general. Stand up at all times. Right. Right. Uh, I gotta say though, the forbidden chair is the chair I do probably want to keep my eye on for the entire service and see at what point you might be able to. To have a little sneaky sit. <laughs> I think that'd be great uh, if you could sneakily sit. And I mean, as long and again, as long as you got those pants on and you're sitting in the chair, I guess it's okay. It couldn't be that bad, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think that's good. Uh, like I said, a bit of a normal question here, but I'm, I think we've got some good uh, beginnings, at least, of a, an etiquette code. <laughs> For sure. All right, Dean, here's another one. This is uh, kind of following the uh, the theme of my last question for you. Uh, should Catholics avoid going on, quote, ghost tours? 
Does the church have a position? People on the Catholic server are always like, does the church, <laughs> the church have, a, have a position on this extremely weird thing that I have to say? Does the church have a position on ghost tours? My cousin is going on vacation and wants to take her four kids on a ghost tour. I advise against it because it may be dangerous spiritually. They may bring something home with them. What do you think? Dean, what does the church say? <laughs> what do they, what do they yeah, say about church, I, ghost tours? I love uh, the part in the catechism where it does have the whole section on ghost tours specifically. It's right off the part about fairies, uh, that's right? That's good. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of the precedents we've had on this show before. You know, we had a question about is it OK to watch ghost hunting YouTube videos, I think, at one point. Yeah, um, I can't really remember where that went, but I'll say this now. Um, I think it's fine to go on the ghost tour. In fact, as a good Catholic, maybe you have an obligation to go on the ghost tour so that you can protect everybody else in the event of an evil spirit manifestation. Now that's something I didn't consider that. If you, especially if you have like some holy water with you or something, right? That'd be cool mm-hmm. of you to kind of be the protector. Um, yep. Here's what somebody else on Reddit says, though. It's probably something you should steer away from because in Catholicism, you're not permitted to talk to ghosts or try to make contact with them up or be a part of such things. Um, it is distracting from God and kind of taught. This person can't write. And I'm having <laughs> grammatical issues here. <laughs> Anyways, the, the point here is, though, that in Catholicism, you're not allowed to talk to ghosts, which I think is kind of messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If a ghost is there and they're trying to talk to you and you just, like, don't answer them, that's just being rude. Pretty rude. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I've never heard that myself. Now, it may or may not be true, uh, but I feel like intuitively, just out of politeness sake, I mean, if someone comes kind of ectoplasming through the wall, uh, you probably have an obligation, again, just to say hi. Uh, Also, maybe for their own good, maybe they're just kind of a wayward soul trying to make their way to purgatory. I mean, you could try evangelizing to them, right? Have they heard the good news about Jesus Christ? And then it's it's their lucky break because uh, good thing they came upon this great Catholic bedroom. Otherwise, uh, they could have ended up, you know, <laughs> they could have ended up somewhere else and become like a really annoying evangelical or something. I mean, alternatively, that's a great way to make a ghost go away, right? They definitely they don't want to talk to you after you say that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Have you heard the good news? All right, here's one for you, Matt. This is could someone explain the prevalence of dissonant organ music? Okay. I'm thinking of tamer music from the modernist era. Things that, while not being avant-garde or outrageous, really seem like dissonance in organ parts. And, of course, there's a handful of extremely Anglican examples mm-hmm. uh, that I won't read. I'll spare you of those. Uh, given how common it is, it feels like it must have some kind of grounding in the tradition of church music or organ playing. But what is it? Are harmonies like this supposed to impress upon the hearers the otherness of God? Or is it more mundane in origin? So, Matt, again, as a great resident Anglican... Can you please explain the prevalence of dissonant organ music? Okay, first of all, I have to say, why are Anglicans like this? Why would you possibly <laughs> log on to reddit.com where you could find the wildest stuff on the planet and you ask this question? I think that's that's the bonkers thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a subreddit for every single thing on this entire planet on this website, <laughs> and you're like, well, let's deal with organ music in church. You should probably ask this on uh, the organ subreddit, actually, but whatever. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, here's the thing that people in Anglican churches don't want you to know. Um, when you hear that dissonant music playing from the pipe organ of your local Anglican church, it's not on purpose. Uh, it's actually just a bad organ player. Uh, Angl- mm-hmm. Anglicans are notoriously bad. <laughs> uh, just messing up. Yeah, they're just bad at it. They're bad at organ players. Uh, the It's supposed to sound differently, but uh, we always just hear it uh, with the dissonance. 
uh, because we're always relying on teens to play these organs for us, and they're not very good or committed to church. That's the thing. <laughs> so that's the secret. That's the secret right, right there. That sounds right. They're just bad at the organ. That seems like the most likely explanation, so I'm willing to take it. And, I mean, I don't know uh, if you've seen an organ lately or if you kind of know the mechanics of it, but, you know, you got the keyboard up on top. You got a lot of little buttons on it, and then you got these, like, pedals in the bottom. I, you know, it's like... Do you want someone to be good at organ? Of course. Of course you do. But, like, is it possible, humanly speaking, to be good at organ? No, it's not. It's impossible. There's too many pedals in that dang thing. You only got two legs. And they're all covered up because you can't show God those legs. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's just so difficult. Um, People can't play organ. It's not not like a – it's not an instrument meant for humans to sort of play in perfection. Yeah, I think they shouldn't even call them organ players. I think they should call them organ pilots because they're basically <laughs> big, big Gundams that can't move. And that sounds pretty frustrating. Yeah, organ strugglers. That's what they called them in, in the sort of medieval ages. That was the, uh, original, right, right. the original term for them. So right, that's right. it. Organ stumblers, just uh, stumbling around the big device. Yeah. Um, maybe, though, maybe this is also a great excuse to talk about some uh, fairy beliefs because maybe the problem is you know, there are these big pipes, you're pushing air through it, and maybe it's just a bunch of big fairies at the bottom trying to keep up with this organ pilot uh, blowing as hard as they can. And every once in a while, I mean, that's a lot of air to go through. You get a couple of dizzy fairies, and you're going to get a dissonant sound. That's true. And if they're demonic fairies, that's going to even be worse, I've heard. Yeah, look at <laughs> Bonkers. Well, Dean, I have one more question for you, and this is a big one. Um, and it is it is going to, once again, ask for church teachings on something. So I hope you're ready. I hope you have of your course. big pile of sort of church documents next to you uh, and you're ready to flip through them. Uh, is, is praying for a gambling win sacrilegious or something? <laughs> it seems like that would be a petitionary prayer, uh, barring some other factor, like praying for a zero-sum game or something. A lot of parentheses here. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, in, in a uh, zero-sum nature of a game, one could perhaps view this as praying for the ill of another, which would almost reduce to pray... Uh, oh my god. Which would almost reduce to praying for one's team to win with uh, with or without wagering involved. Is that problematic somehow? Um, is the church have any teachings on this? So is it uh, is it sacrilegious or something if you were to pray uh, that you uh, got a bingo and won a bunch of money? Right. Well, it's definitely something. I think we can start there. Uh, and I want to work backwards from the, the logic at the end. So if you prayed for your team to win, that might be bad uh, because the other team would lose. And wouldn't that be bad? Because um, you don't want to wish, you know, harm to the, the opposite team. Now, I think this is going to be a really problematic logic for all kinds of prayers, because what if you're walking around and you're praying like, oh, man, let me get that job tomorrow. You do a great job in the job interview. Someone else doesn't get that job. Maybe you're walking around and you're praying, uh, oh, man, let there be a great parking spot. But guess what? That means someone else isn't going to have that great parking spot. So it becomes a slippery slope pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And I think that means uh, when you're at the big spinning black and red disc (laughs) that they have at casinos, and you place... Yeah, roulette, that's what it is. <laughs> and and uh, you place your bets, you bet it all on red, and you say and you say a little prayer for that. I think that's fine, because the house should lose, first of all. And uh, I think it's it just makes sense. I don't know, You're if, if you start playing by uh, bad prayer gambling rules, you're going to run out of other things to pray for. So somebody is, I think that makes sense, first of all. I, I think that makes sense. Uh, it's a good answer. Someone said, though, if a Catholic goes into a casino and doesn't win, they will acknowledge that it wasn't part of God's plan that they win. So 
What about that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you can still pray for it to happen. It's like if you pray for someone who's sick to get better Mm -hmm. and they don't. It's not like you're like, oh, I shouldn't have made that prayer because it wasn't God's plan. (laughs) But what if you bet money that somebody was going to get better? (laughs) Right, 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 right. (laughs) Then you better pray extra because uh, you're going to have two losses in that case. Um, All right. Let me give you a last question here, too, Matt. And the the title of this one is Clergy Shirt Colors. Okay. Okay. Uh, I've heard a lot of theories about the various shirt colors. Oh, my God. First of all. Would love to hear those. Um, I'd like to know what you guys think. Define who is permitted to wear the following colors and what the theological significance of each color is within Anglican Christianity. Oh, my God. Now, I'm going to read a few of these colors. So there's black. There's gray. Light blue, royal blue, purple, pinkish, reddish, purple. And they say, if I've missed any, can you explain why it's worn? So start anywhere, Matt, wherever you want to go, whatever <laughs> color is really tickling your fancy here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, great question. Um, sorry, well, could, you, could you tell me the colors again? I got too distracted. Right, sure, yeah. Black, gray, light blue, royal blue, purple, and then pinkish, reddish purple. That didn't help. Uh, let's see. Purple is for when you eat a jelly sandwich and it gets on your shirt. Black is for when you right, eat right. some chocolate cake and it gets on your shirt. Uh Royal blue is for when you put your blue pen into your pocket and you forget to put the cap on it. I mean, see, that's the thing about these shirts is that uh, people assume they have theological meanings, but they don't. They're always really kind of coordinated around what you're going to eat that day or <laughs> what kind of pen you're writing with. That's the thing that people need to know about. Clear. Uh, that makes sense. There are some some comments here. I don't know. I guess bishops wear purple or something. Priests wear a, a black cossack. But one person did say one that they left out is Hawaiian, and that's for <laughs> university chaplain. And I appreciate that <laughs> rare bit of humor on our Anglicanism. A good joke, at least. Yeah, great. Why are people like this? This this is always the question that I come to when when we read uh, stuff from the Anglicans I've read it. I don't know why Anglicans <laughs> are like this. Something about their personalities are just like the worst. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I would like to hear the various theories about shirt colors personally because this person does say they've heard a lot. There of are that. various and theories. The, I but like yeah. listen, it sucks so bad though, right? Like that that in Catholicism, it's like. Or can I go on a ghost tour? Can I can I pray about gambling? <laughs> and then we go to the Anglican subreddit, and it's just not it's not fair. Like people should be concerned about those things there. But instead, they're just like, <laughs> I don't know what color of the shirt. Does, what does this mean? Like, shut up, <laughs> stop. Yeah, too normal, you guys. I feel like I'm just being collectively embarrassed by people in my religion, and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, if you want the weird stuff, you gotta cross the Tiber and get on over here to Rome. I gotta tell you. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot of things at stake with that, but uh, I'll I'll consider it at all at, at, as always. <laughs> all right, well, we've done it. Um, that ate up a good half of this episode, which is fantastic. That means we only have another half to figure out and come up with things to say about. And uh, at this stage in the lock-in episodes, we usually turn to some current events. I've got a couple Pope news events this time around. Um, I have two, so maybe I'll start with one, Matt, and then uh, we'll we'll switch off here. Yeah. So uh, let me start with the the older news. This is uh, something that was really kind of at the end of last month. But Pope Francis said that he is going to name a handful of new cardinals. I think I don't know. I forget how many of them. 20 or something. A lot of them. 21, actually. 
And uh, 16 of those cardinals are under 80 years old, which means they're allowed to vote for the pope, uh, the next pope. And we've talked about this on some past episodes, kind of Pope Francis's long term strategy. Uh, People like to see Pope Francis as a radical revolutionary. I think that that's probably overstating it, but he is definitely an institutional reformer. And that stuff comes through with all these big papal announcements about making new cardinals and who's going to vote for the next pope and so on. So whenever there's a new crop of cardinals, I get very nerdy about it. I like to know where they're coming from. Are there any kind of standouts? And Pope Francis has definitely been stacking the deck, I think, uh, so that hopefully the next pope will also be a a reforming kind of pope. A lot of the cardinals that are voting are, uh, I don't know, generally... I don't know if if not progressive, they're in the Pope Francis mold, I guess. For the sake of clarification for people that don't know, right, it's it's the cardinals that end up picking the next pope. That's that's right. Right, right. Yes, exactly. I should back up. (laughs) Right. This is a a great question for the art Catholicism subreddit. So um, (laughs) what are the church teachings about that? (laughs) Right. So there is um, a conclave that's called that uh, when a pope dies and the people who participate in that conclave are usually cardinals. They're always cardinals. And they vote for the Pope. Now, technically, the Pope doesn't have to be a cardinal. Um, The people who vote in the conclave could vote for any Catholic to be Pope. I could be the Pope. But usually they vote for a cardinal. Mm. So from among themselves. And so the, you know, when Pope Francis was voted in as the Pope, um, he had actually been kind of a, a front runner in the previous papal election when Benedict was voted in. And so uh, he, you know, Benedict won out, I guess. And uh, so now it was Pope Francis's turn. And so a lot of the people who would have voted in that election and in the previous one before that, too, are either aging out or, you know, have died and, and so on. So Pope Francis has been slowly replacing them. He's also been expanding the the cardinals. Um, and it's really interesting. Like, you might ask, why would he appoint any uh, cardinals over 80 if they can't vote for the Pope at all. And I think that's where things get actually very interesting. So in this new crop of cardinals, the ones who are under 80 are pretty cool. Uh, The first ever Dalit cardinal from India was uh, named. Um, The Dalits are a a sort of under under caste, subcast, the kind of untouchable caste. And there have been Dalit bishops in the past, but never a Dalit cardinal. So that's very cool that they have one. Uh, There was a progressive bishop in the West Coast, I think maybe Seattle or something, I forget, but he was made a cardinal um, and a handful of others. Uh, There was also a guy who is from Brazil, who is a friend, was a friend, I guess, of Pedro Casal de Liga, uh, one of the liberation theology bishops. And so a lot of really interesting choices, very clear kind of progressive choices. The ones who are over 80 uh, in general, I think, are actually more interesting, though, because Pope Francis will often like make a cardinal who is going to vote sort of as a progressive type. But the ones who are over 80, at least as far as I can tell, are either like ones who kind of like out of respect or kind of tradition, a person from this diocese would generally be a cardinal. So after 80, they're kind of institutionally harmless, I guess. (laughs) That's the cynical way of looking at it. And uh, Pope Francis makes them a cardinal. Uh, But he also goes kind of the other way and makes cardinals over 80 of people who are like maybe even further left than he is. So the two examples I always think of, one is a a Bishop Esquivel in uh, San Cristobal de las Casas, which is the the diocese where the Zapatistas were uh, not based, but like did a lot of work. And uh, the previous bishop of that place 
Samuel Ruiz have mediated between the Zapatistas and the government. So anyway, that uh, successor to Samuel Ruiz was named a cardinal after 80. Also, uh, a bishop, an indigenous bishop in Bolivia was named a cardinal after 80. So when there's a next papal election, like they'll participate in the deliberation, even if they can't vote. So all that to say, this is all very interesting to me because Pope Francis is setting up this really wild kind of scenario where in the next papal election, there will be a majority of the people who are voting have been appointed by Pope Francis now. And there are also going to be like a handful of really wild people over 80, like giving their opinions to these people who are voting. So it's going to be a really bizarre (laughs) conclave the next time it comes around. And uh, I hope it doesn't come too soon. I like Pope Francis. I'd like him to stick around as long as he can. But uh, anyway, if you're a huge Catholic nerd or you just like learning about institutional politics, man, you can look up these 21 cardinals and all the rest of them that Pope Francis has nominated or or, uh, made cardinal. And uh, it's an exciting time to be in the weeds about Catholic politics. That's super fascinating. Um, You know, when you think about Catholicism, or at least when I do, um, you know, you think about it's like sort of traditionalism, not in the weird trad sense, just like in general, that it it is a uh, is an institution with a tradition. You know, you think of tradition as something that's like really fixed and that doesn't change over time. But uh, it's interesting to see like what the mechanisms of change in a church like, you know, the Catholic Church Mm -hmm. actually looks like. Um, so pretty fascinating to see how that kind of unfolds that, you know, there is, uh, there are ways to reform the church, uh, this like kind of like massive, um, seemingly unmovable institution that's like very medieval, uh, but it does have mechanisms to change. And that's, yeah, exactly. And Pope Francis has really been explicit even in the past week about saying traditionalism is actually, he thinks kind of the, the big enemy in the church right now. And he wants people to lean into the reforms of Vatican II which arguably John Paul II and uh, Benedict did not lean into. They uh, softened that council. And so what Pope Francis is also trying to do is um, affirm the reformist efforts in the middle of the 20th century and trying to create kind of an institutional guarantee, I think, is the bet he's making that that reform is going to continue, that he'll be able to push the reform down the road a little further. So, yeah, I mean, I think even in the Catholic Church, there's a perception that it's an institution that that doesn't ever change. But the Second Vatican Council, I mean, some people sort of see it as like the true continuity of the church, right? It's discovering the roots of Catholicism and then carrying those forward. Some see it as a rupture or kind of a break. Um, I think, uh, I don't know, there's, there's merit to both of those interpretations. But it's cool that Pope Francis is trying to create I guess trying to lay an infrastructure that's going to have ramifications down the yeah. road. All right. Um, I think it's been the tradition on on the lock-in episodes where Dean will talk about the Pope and then I'll talk about some extremely obscure piece of like labor, <laughs> <laughs> labor struggle going on in the world. Um, and this episode will be no different than those previous ones. Um, man, it seems like it's been a while since I've said anything about this, but um, I'll kind of give an update. So in past episodes of The Lock-In, I talked about a really obscure piece of legislation uh, in the California state legislature, (laughs) which is not even like where I live, but it's really interesting. Um, And it's kind of like this interesting um, labor struggle that's happening at the state level. Um, So there is this uh, piece of legislation in California called AB 257, and it's, uh, it's called the Fast Recovery Act. And it's really fascinating because it would, if it was if it was passed, 
which I'll tell you more about in a minute, <laughs> it would create a sectoral council for fast food workers all throughout California. So that means like, I don't know, there's something like, I think I read 500,000 um, uh, fast food workers in California. So mm -hmm. a lot of people. Uh, it would basically create sort of like a governmental sort of like state entity that would um, set sector rules and regulations for the fast food industry in California. Um, and you might be thinking, well, wouldn't it be better if they had a union or something? And yeah, it would be better. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. But um, because of the ways that labor laws in the United States are, how, how jacked up they are and completely unfair, there are, I mean, a whole just group of people who basically don't have access to having a union, who basically don't even have like a right to a union um, because of ways that uh, laws exclude certain people in certain industries. Um, like farm workers and um, and domestic workers. Fast food workers are really interesting because they, like, I mean, technically they have a right to a union, but in practice they don't really, um, especially at places that um, are franchise models. There's all kinds of these, like, legal loopholes that um, fast food companies like McDonald's or Jack in the Box or whoever can use to kind of sidestep organizing efforts and really shut them down. So, um Franchises are really hard places to unionize uh, because, I mean, at the end of the day, the only thing you could ever do is, like, win a a union in one, mm -hmm. one franchise. And then it wouldn't be like you have a, a, a union at McDonald's. You have a union at, like, the LLC of whoever owns the franchise. So it's, like, really complicated to do. So anyways, that's why the strategy here has been to pass this, like, state-level legislation that would um, kind of create this, like uh, – Para, paragovernmental organization that would um, kind of give workers at least a foothold to start making changes for people in their sector. And um, it's important. So anyways, um, that is a piece of legislation that's in California. And I mentioned it in the past in the podcast. And now I'm telling you about it again, <laughs> like maybe a year later. Um, it, the uh, the legislation didn't didn't kind of go through last time the California legislation, the, the California, you know, um, legislature was in in session um didn't go through it was a big bummer but anyways um it is uh it was in the senate labor committee in california and it got passed out of that committee um just a few days ago on june 13th so this piece of legislation has a little bit of new life and uh it's pretty cool you know i mean like it it's it's really cool and you know if something like this happens in california it kind of like sets sort of like a blueprint for other states that could kind of pick it up um, so it's a pretty big deal, I think. It's a pretty big deal, and if it was passed, it would have a huge impact on the lives of some, you know, extremely, um, uh, just lots of, like, poor and low-wage people in this country. It would make a big difference to them. And I think it's cool. So there you go. If you're interested in uh, supporting the least of these, that's a place you can think about it in. So it passed through the Labor Committee. What happens to it next? Like, I guess it has to be debated more generally in the, the legislature and kind of move on? Or Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it kind of goes through the, the rest of the California um, legislative system. Hmm. So there's a, there's a lot more steps, but it's, you know, it's passed through the committee. So it's kind of like on to the next step. And, uh, you know, now it's just about making sure that, uh, you know, the – the workers themselves can talk to the right politicians and that they have the support uh, to get it passed all the way through. So we'll see how it goes. It's a struggle for sure. But I think that's what's important about this too. And I don't want to like undersell it as this is like, you know, it's a legislative solution. So that, that means that there's 
a lot of politicians who are involved in like kind of pushing this and arguing for it. And that's true. Um, but the workers, the fast food workers in California have been extremely vocal about it and have been like, I mean, through the past two years, basically, have been doing everything they can to kind of draw attention to this particular piece of legislation. Um, really recently, last month, even um, like uh, I don't I can't remember exactly the, the number that it was, but California fast food workers like across the entire state went on strike for like a day of action. Like a bunch of them got arrested outside of the Jack and Bo- Jack in the Box uh, like headquarters. So it's like, you know, it's it's a this is a, a legislative sort of solution, but like the worker power is like very clearly behind it, and mm-hmm. they are, you know, pretty well organized. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Yeah, that's cool. And maybe this is unrelated, but does that also present a path forward for other kinds of weird issues? Like uh, I don't know, just thinking of like other contingently employed or precariously employed people in California, or is it kind of restricted to like fast food workers and in general? Yeah, it's a, I mean, this is particularly about fast food workers because it's, it's a, it's creating a sectoral council for those, Mm. for that sector of industry in particular. Right. Um, So, I mean, but like, you know, what could it mean in the future is like always the question, Mm -hmm. like, you know, um, there's a lot of people in in uh, California that are organizing gig gig workers and you know other kinds of sort of like uh, workers that don't have union protections or or lack a very clear path to a union. Hmm. So it's like you know people could always take this legislation and they could form it for their own particular thing or something. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a way forward for I think a lot of people. It's a, it's a maybe a blueprint is a good way to think about it. Neat. Uh, always good to have good news on this podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let me give you a, another current event here. More Pope news. So this was just a few days ago. Pope Francis made a, a kind of um, well, he had he had a, a conversation <laughs> with a handful of folks uh, that ended up making some headlines uh, re- related to the war in Ukraine and war more generally. And I think it's probably one of the best crystallizations so far of how Pope Francis has been navigating that, both kind of weird geopolitical situations in in terms of that and then in terms of the the discourse around it. So Pope Francis has been reticent to, like, I don't know, fully, like, make a kind of, you know, like he hasn't made a a pro-NATO or pro-Russia statement at all, and in fact has really only done kind of the negative move, that he's condemned Russia over and over, even though people don't grant that to him. (laughs) He has made that pretty clear. And he has also condemned NATO escalating the situation in Ukraine, and uh, that, too, is something that people kind of, uh, I guess, uh, dismiss or, you know, misunderstand. So anyway, in this recent uh, conversation, he took the time to clarify a few things. And I think that it was actually it's really like a good model for how we think about talking about complex situations w- while also being able to make moral judgments about them. So I'll read just a few things that he had to say. So first of all. Pope Francis, like I said, has been accused of kind of being like, I guess, by failing to, you know, strike the same exact tone as like Joe Biden or something (laughs) or or the West in general. Uh, He's been accused of being kind of a a Russian puppet or being naive or or being pro-Russia even for whatever reason. Uh, So he clarifies by saying, I'm simply against reducing complexity to the distinction between good guys and bad guys without reasoning about roots and interests, which are complex. 
While we see the ferocity, the cruelty of Russian troops, we must not forget real problems if we want them to be solved. And he uses that as kind of his lead off to start talking about those real problems. And I think that's really the kicker from Pope Francis. It's uh, we can't forget the the roots if we want to actually solve the problem. So <laughs> it may not be fun to talk about NATO escalation or it may even be complicated to talk about multiple causes of a, a conflict like in Ukraine. But nevertheless, like if you don't want a war, you have to figure that out. So I appreciate that, first of all, refusing that kind of. I don't know, good guy, bad guy thing. Later on, he calls it a, uh, he says there are no metaphysical good guys and bad guys in an abstract sense, um, which I can appreciate too. So he's trying to get to the complexity. Uh, A couple other quotes I'll read and then maybe we could talk it through. He also said, uh, what we're seeing is the brutality and ferocity with which this war is being carried out by the troops, generally mercenaries used by the Russians. But the danger is that we only see this, which is monstrous, and we do not see the whole drama unfolding behind this war, which was perhaps somehow either provoked or not prevented. And note the interest in testing and selling weapons. It's very sad, but at the end of the day, that is what is at stake. And he goes on to say that uh, the Ukraine situation is very close to people in Europe, but there are conflicts in other countries far away, such as the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Nigeria, and Myanmar, and nobody cares. He recalled that some years ago he said, we are living the Third World War piece by piece, but now the world is at war. And he's called it a, a Third World War. So lots of things on the table here, but I thought I'd just kind of put it here so we could have a general chat about it. Um, I think it's a really careful and also, uh, I guess, like brave or courageous way of entering peace discourse. And uh, I've been really kind of encouraged to see how Pope Francis is trying to like thread a very challenging needle in all this. Yeah, I agree. You know, the situation in Ukraine and in Russia is very complicated and I'm not here to say, <laughs> I don't know, to, to like cheer on for a side. I think the Pope is right in saying that there's no metaphysical good guys or bad guys. I think I like that way of thinking. Um some people, I mean, a lot of progressives in the United States, even people who are, you know, ostensibly anti-war are not <laughs> when it comes to this particular issue. Right. Um, a lot of progressives were even like cheering on um, when the United States gave, you know, billions of dollars in um, in arms money, basically, to Ukraine. And it's just uh, I, I guess I appreciate what the Pope says, because it's just like, are you against war or are you not against war? Mm-hmm. It's kind of the way that it feels. Um it is complicated. It is a situation where there's like not an easy answer um, and figuring out exactly what the cause is could be uncomfortable for people because it does explicate a lot of um, political tensions and problems and issues. But I mean, I think at the end of the day, like if you're committed to being against war in general, I mean, this is maybe uh, how you do it. Mm hmm. I think, too, just the recognition of all those complexities, like, of course, and I think Pope Francis is right to say, you know, Russia has a real kind of ferocity to it, a brutality, a monster monstrosity or whatever you want to say. Um, Absolutely. But Pope Francis wants to say there's a lot of other stuff going on, too. Right. Uh, Weapons testing, weapons sales, uh, lots of other interests of the West. Um, There is a a competition of empires and a competition of global powers and kind of geopolitical rearrangement. And even Pope Francis's comment that this uh, war was either provoked or at least not prevented. I think that is such a key. Like, 
Mm-hmm. What is it that didn't prevent this? And again, it's true. Putin is uh, a, a, a bad leader, if you ask me. I don't think he's a good guy. <laughs> I think that's fine yep. to say. Um, but like uh, at the same time, like, I don't know, the people in the West and uh, Joe Biden and the other folks who have interests in that region are also uh, not acting with diplomatic solutions necessarily at the top of their kind of priority list, right? And it's not to say that, like, the the people negotiating for the NATO side kind of wanted the war or whatever, uh, but the fact is they failed to prevent it from happening. And what what's the reason of that failure and to try to kind of reduce it all to a, a metaphysical stand-in or a caricature of one side or the other uh, also means that that prevents us from trying to prevent these kinds of things happening again in, in the future. And I think that is also a huge kind of lesson of this, this uh, war is that there's a real reticence to try to understand how we fail to prevent violence. And I really find Pope Francis's voice saying, we have to figure that out. Like we have to name what all the interests are in this situation and figure out how we failed to prevent it. If we want to avoid, you know, plunging the world even further into war. So I don't know that, that piece I think has really stuck with me this week. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really helpful way to start kind of grappling with the bigger issues behind it. I, I mean, I, I've been thinking about it a little bit. I mean, I was away and now I'm back and um, <laughs> being in a different time zone changes the, your perception of social media. <laughs> and now that I'm back and kind of thrust into it at all again. And I can't help but think, I, I mean, I can't help but notice, I guess, the ways that um, liberals talk, at least on social media, about Ukraine. And it does feel very much like they're rooting for a sports team and not mm-hmm. like observing an international conflict that is um, very real and very horrible. And I don't know. Um, I guess all of that to say, I don't think people take it very seriously because they're not trained to think about it in a moral way. Um, so I guess I'm glad the Pope is at least doing some of that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And also, as always, the addition of saying we think about Ukraine because they're Europeans, but we're not thinking about all these other conflicts right. in other countries. Um I think that's really important, too, because his final line of saying the world is at war is really significant because when we think about World War One and Two, I mean, these are Europe is kind of the theater of war. And then, of course, Africa and the Pacific are kind of drawn into that. And then in a kind of roundabout way, the U.S. gets involved. Right. So when we think about the World War, we kind of think about this interimperialist war um, in Europe that kind of draws the rest of the world into it. But I think Pope Francis is right to say, well, the whole world is at war right now. (laughs) And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's still kind of an inter-imperialist war insofar as like, so it's not, you know, whatever, um, the Kaiser fighting, I don't know, the rest of Europe or, or something, but like, right. It is the case that capitalism is, is driving all this stuff. There's a kind of unifying logic of, uh, the profit motive, you know, destroying whole communities, destroying whole countries, allowing lots of awful kinds of groups to rise up and creating instability, all that kind of stuff. And, I think that is also important to kind of recognize that there is a kind of perverse unity to all those conflicts. And Pope Francis doesn't say that exactly here, but he does actually gesture toward that in Fratelli Tutti as well, trying to say the conflicts, you know, they're, as he says here, he used to say the Third World War was being fought kind of piecemeal, you know, here and there. But now it's really threatening to, like, bring the whole world uh, under a violent banner in a really dangerous way. 
And I think we should pay attention to that kind of call before it's too late. And it's important to, again, figure out what all those root causes might be. Yeah, totally. A lot to think about for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm thinking about it right now and I'm having a hard time <laughs> with it. Well, as we round up the episode, let me bring one more current event. This is probably the most current event because it's actually about the future. Um, so while I was away, I read an interesting book. It is a verso book in true form for sure. Uh, it's called Half Earth Socialism. It's by Troy Vatisse and Drew Pendergrass. And it is a really fascinating book about uh, socialism and climate change. Um, okay. It is a book that is kind of like intervening in uh, a lot of socialist discourse. And it's kind of like finding itself not necessarily in like Marxism, Leninism, but it is definitely socialist in a Marxist sense. But it kind of like roots itself in um, like utopian types of socialism. And, and uh, it's a book that I think is really compelling and I found really fascinating. So um, what's the, the, the main the main thesis of the book, though, is that like we need this like sort of new utopian, uh, not new, but we need a utopian socialist project so that uh, if people ask, you know, how do we get ourselves out of climate change? How do we move past like the. Um, the the short-sighted capitalist answers to climate change, like, you know, so you can say, well, it would look like this. So that's kind of what the book is doing. It is um, a lot of, like, criticism about current and existing climate sort of climate technologies or, like, uh, low-carbon technologies or carbon sequestration. Um, and it's also, um, also mixed in with all of, like, the sort of, like, hard science of it all is like a little bit of fiction about like what the future like socialist earth would look like um, given the uh, given climate change. And it's really fun in a lot of ways. Um, it's a book that uh, I think is really cool. It, there's like I said, there's a lot of sort of like science in it that I'm I'm still not sure I really understand mm -hmm. uh, not being a particularly sciencey minded person. But um, something that the book does, or at least it, it kind of rose to my attention <laughs> when I was reading this book was um, about something I hadn't considered before when it comes to climate change and sort of technologies around it that might mitigate climate change um, is the question about land use. And dang, that's a problem I hadn't considered. I guess like in my brain, <laughs> my, my extremely non-scientific um, humanities ma major brain, it's like, well, how do we solve climate change? You got to drive less cars. You got to get these great wind turbines up there. You got to get some cool solar panels. Um, and like, that's it, right? You solved it. <laughs> but uh, this book tells me, no, that's not true. Uh, there are all these other types of technologies that um, that like sort of like more green capitalist kind of people are interested in and invested in that might mitigate some of climate change. But they go to some pretty interesting lengths to explain why they wouldn't work. Um, and, and for the reasons of land use specifically, like maybe they would work in theory, like in put into a model, they would be fine. But, um, you know, when the rubber hits the road, you would need a massive amount of land to make these things work. And anyways, all I'm trying to say here is that that's something I had not considered previously before I read this book. And I'm interested to bring it here to this podcast. So um, the particular technology that they're critiquing is this thing called BEX or it's it's an acronym that stands for bio. That stands for bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So BEX are this like really interesting kind of technology that's supposed to mitigate climate change because it's a negative carbon model um, of of like generating energy. So basically, these BEX, the, these like bio, these these bioenergy 
and caption carbon capture um, units, plants. I don't know what you call them. They're plantations, basically. So the idea is that like you would plant a bunch of trees that would absorb carbon from the atmosphere, and then you would burn those trees for energy, and then you would capture the carbon from burning the wood, and then you'd bury it underground. So what you end up with is you take carbon out of the air and you put it into the ground where it can't kill people <laughs> or hurt the planet, right? And um, this is like these sorts of like um, th- this is an answer. These, these like sort of like plantations are an answer that like a lot of um, like green technology people like to tout as like a as an answer as a realistic solution to climate change because it's like uh, I mean on paper in in a model it seems really cool and straightforward because uh, you're taking the carbon out of the air and you put it somewhere else and we love that it's great. Um, but the book goes to some lengths to critique this particular model because capitalists love it, but it's also sort of like a, what they call a type of pseudo rationality when it comes mm. to climate because, um, well, it seems nice, uh, to actually do what you would need to do. It would require so much land. It would be like, you know, two Indians mm-hmm. <laughs> or something, you know, it would be huge, um, to, to have these, um, these areas that would create enough electricity to, you know, actually work for the current uh, models of consumption. So the book kind of goes out and says, like, well, you know, if that's not really an answer, what is the answer? And then they kind of lay out a handful of what they kind of term is like a type of like natural geoengineering, which is not it sounds scarier than it is. What they're really talking about is this movement of rewilding um, a pretty huge portion of the earth with a 50%. So it's it's really what they're talking about is like land conservation and turning a lot of land back from like malls <laughs> and like suburban houses to uh, to real rewilded areas. And that would, um, in, in their estimation, um, be a way to start uh, pushing back against climate change because uh, you get uh, species back. The big sixth wave of extinction is kind of taken care of when um, plants and animals have uh, half of the earth to kind of like repopulate themselves. Uh, you get like less zoonotic diseases like COVID um, or or avian flu or something like that because um, uh, in, in their estimation as well, like um, vegetarianism and veganism is a big part of it as well. So anyways, it's a really interesting book that does, I think, some really helpful imaginative work of explaining what a eco-socialist future could look like and how eco-socialism has um, a type of logic behind it when it comes to planning and participation um, that can actually stop climate change, whereas capitalism can't. <laughs> it just it doesn't have the capacity to because it kind of, you know, it just waits for somebody to come along and think of a great idea and try to make a lot of money off of it, and that would be the solution to climate change, where that is, you know, um, <laughs> irrational completely because it's just not going to happen. Um, so the book is, uh, I think, really interesting. It gives you a lot to think about. It gives you a lot of critique. It gives you a lot of science that, um, like I said, I'm still kind of trying to figure out myself. And maybe um, I don't <laughs> I don't know if I have the scientific chops to really uh, get into it all. But it is a really fascinating book. Uh, I would recommend it. It is an interesting thing to read and consider. <laughs> it sounds really neat. I played the video game that's attached to it. And uh couldn't quite well i didn't have the patience i guess to succeed <laughs> i think yeah. that was my problem um but uh i mean it's very interesting i guess my whole question as always this is the perennial question not just theirs but the whole question is always where do you get the the political will and ability to pull it off uh and what do you do with all the other complicated questions around 
land migration, all that kind of stuff. Things that uh, under our current capitalist hellscape are not um, not sources of hope <laughs> at the moment. But nevertheless, I think it's good to have those really big imaginative projects anyway, because they kind of send your brain off on thinking about those other practical issues and they maybe create a little more space to think about what's possible. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this if you want to know how you would organize for an eco-socialist utopia, this is not right. <laughs> exactly. Um, it does not give you a blueprint for that. And I mean, um, I think that's exactly the question I want to ask as well is like, how do you get from A to B and, and how do you start moving in that direction? And um, a good question, maybe one of the most essential but at the same time, the point of the book is to, like, offer uh, alternative vision. And I think that's pretty helpful, just the same. Like, um, you know, it, it's like it, it's at least something to kind of grab onto for a second. And when you see, like, IPCC reports come out in the future or you see other sort of, like, reports about the climate come out and then, you know, um, handy solutions handed out, like, that are sort of, like, extremely technocratic in nature – at least you have something to kind of hold on to to be like, well, this is actually what a different earth would look like. <laughs> you know, this is how we, we could also deal with it or something. So the the, the imaginative part, I think, is actually um, offers a lot of critical perspectives that are really helpful for critiquing the the current answers to climate uh, climate change. But, yeah, it's not an organizing mm -hmm. guide. And that is a bigger yeah. problem. <laughs> well, nevertheless, um, I'm all about a big, weird, speculative uh, project. I think that's fine. <laughs> we just have to. Think more about it later with some different books, maybe. Yeah, that's right. Um, more books about organizing, maybe, is uh, is a good direction <laughs> to head in the future. Uh, well, there you have it, folks. We were away on vacation, but now we're back. Uh, we took our one sick day uh, in six years. So in six more years, we'll get another sick day. Can't wait to use that. Um, what else at the end of this, Matt? Usually we have a whole kind of rich fiction about youth group and in this lock-in, et cetera. We've kind of missed that this time around. Um, you'll have to get it next time. But uh, what kind of great question could we send our, our listeners off with? No, no questions on my end. What you need to do is go to your priest or pastor and ask them what their church teaching is on cryptids. That's what you need to do. <laughs> All right, great. That's a, it's a commandment. It's a commandment from the end of this podcast. Not That's a question. right. And you can send that to us at uh, themagnificast.gmail.com. Uh, if you like what you heard, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can find us on Twitter and everywhere else. We don't check all those messages too often, but uh, sometimes we do. Um, we have a cool Discord community. If you join our Patreon, you can chat with other folks who are doing all kinds of interesting stuff. There was a, a neat reading group that just wrapped up talking about Guy Debord and some other situationist material, I guess. Uh, <laughs> lots of other good conversations. Lots of good memes. You can check that out uh, on our Patreon. And our music, as always, is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up you Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up where you 
keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have.